Well, amen. You know, those words we just sang, almost to the exact words we're going to study today in Isaiah. What does it mean that God is mighty to save, and what is his plan for saving not just good people, uh, but all people and disobeying people? You know, what's interesting, one of the joys I have as your pastor is a chance to hear firsthand real life change stories. Boy, in the last couple of weeks, I've heard people who've been coming for three weeks, some who've been coming for a couple of years, some people who are a couple, some were singles, some were families. They've all said the same thing in totally different ways, but the same thing. Chad, I cannot believe that every week we come in and we hear God speaking to us through stuff like Isaiah. It's like every week, the series we planned 18 months ago is so relevant to our life. Another family talked about a real time of turmoil they've been through and our exploring service doing the seven wonders of the world talked about the Machu Picchu last week and how it was earthquake proof. And they said, that's exactly what we need to hear today, that we need an earthquake proof faith. And God is speaking to us through our exploring service. Talked to somebody else who was inviting a friend, enjoyed our service, invite another friend like that, and they're just starting to fill up an entire row. As you can see, we're really full around here as people are continuing to say, I'm coming to learn from God and to hear his voice in my life. So again, just an honor to be part of that. You've been with us in our Isaiah series. We've been covering uh, not every chapter, which is atypical to us, but we're covering a whole lot of the chapters, and today we get to the chapter, what it means for him to be our Savior on a cloud. And in this series, we're learning that God knows the future. When life feels like it's just crazy falling apart, we can trust. He predicted in advance a virgin would be with child. And that was a future prediction for those who heard it, but it's in the past for us. And we say, I can trust God because he did what he said he was going to do. Then he promised there would be a son that would be born, a child that would be given. And sure enough, we learned about that two weeks ago. We learned about what it means for him to be the branch that was predicted. He would come from Branchville, otherwise known as Nazareth, hundreds of years in advance. Today we're looking at what does it mean for God to be our Savior. He's the one that saves us from drowning. Drowning in our own bad works, because they're worse than we think. But also drowning in our own good works, because we think we can save ourselves. What does it look like that God is our Savior? Well, we're going to find today that God saves drowning disobeyers. And we're all disobeyers. We're also going to find that God makes saints. He doesn't take saints. He makes saints out of rescued rebels. And that's why this image is so powerful we're going to see today. Is when it says he's mighty to save, the word saved is one who saves. It's actually just a, a hair difference between the name of Jesus. Yeshua, Jesus saves, God saves, and one who saves. So even Isaiah is almost using Jesus' literal name in this phrase he's going to use today. Promising he can make saints out of you and me. Coming to save drowning disobeyers. Here's how he's going to say it, verse 20. It's going to be a sign for you in Egypt. For they will cry to the Lord because of their oppressors. And he will send a savior, Yeshua, a mighty one. And he will deliver them. God wants all his people to know he is their deliverer. So we're going to look at three actions of the Lord today. As we look at these actions... We've moved from a time where God has been judging Israel for their waywardness. Now he's moving on to judge the foreign nations who are not Israel for their waywardness. We talked a few weeks ago about the fact that you know, God does hold governments accountable for their actions. He's holding Israel accountable when they were outside of his will. He's now going to hold Egypt accountable. And God has a master plan to expunge evil, even from Egypt. 
but he does it because he loves Egypt. Let me show you what happens here. The verse begins this way, chapter 19. The burden against Egypt. Behold, the Lord rides on a swift cloud. It's a constant image of Jesus coming. Daniel's got a vision of this in his vision. It's this idea that God the Savior is coming in the form to earth to save. And he's coming into Egypt. God the Savior is coming to Egypt? Yeah. And when he does, everything you depend on that is not God is going to totter. The idols of Egypt will totter. And what is an idol? It's that thing you go to for advice, the thing you go to for your identity, the place you find peace and comfort. Anything besides God will totter when difficulty comes because it's not secure. And they will also totter in his presence because they don't stand up to the presence of God. And the heart of Egypt will melt in its midst. Oh, that's what the glory of God is like. And I'm going to allow Egypt to go through some difficult things to realize they need me. I'm going to set Egyptians against Egyptians. Everyone's going to fight against his brother. It's going to be a civil war. Everyone against his neighbor. City against city. Kingdom against kingdom. So God's going to allow Egypt to totter, which means to quake or shiver when they realize that all the things we thought could save us aren't working. And they're going to start to realize they're drowning. Now, when we see this, part of this is going to happen in their future, our past, a time where the Assyrian dictator is going to come in, conquer Egypt. There's going to be a lot of civil war. I couldn't believe this is happening. I thought we were safe. And now they're going to be crying out for help. But ultimately, Egypt did not become a fully Christian country who cried out to God back in 500 B.C. So we think Isaiah, when he's looking into the future, he doesn't often see the time space in between the things he can see, like someone looking at three mountaintops. So we think the final fulfillment of this is what we know as the end times, where the final cruel leader, we'll see in a moment, that's going to come and bring a crushing blow to them, that's going to be the Antichrist, and it's during that time they're going to call out for a Savior and find God to be not only the Savior of Israel, but also the Savior of anyone who calls to Him. So he goes on, he says, now, besides that civil war I'm going to let you go through, I'm also going to totter the things you're holding on to by sending a fierce dictator to be in control of your life. The spirit of Egypt is going to fall in its midst. I will destroy their counsel, and they will consult the idols and the charmers and the mediums and the sorcerers. You're going to look for all kinds of sources of saving that's not me, and they're all going to totter. And you're going to find they can't save you from this evil dictator I'm going to let come over your life. Into the Egyptians I will give into your hand a cruel master, a fierce king that will rule over them. Israel, you cruelly ruled over Israel and kept them in bondage. I'm going to let you feel what it's like to have a cruel ruler putting you in bondage, says the Lord of hosts. So again, part of that is going to happen with the Syrians who come in and conquer Egypt, and they don't see it coming, and like, whoa, none of our gods of Egypt could save us. But I think the future realm of this is not only the, the tribulation with the Antichrist, but he's going to start hinting at some good news that comes out of the bad news a time where they do reach out to him and they do find him as Savior. The Egyptians, of all people. But he's going to have to really turn up the heat or pour on the water to help them realize they're drowning as he's trying to expunge evil out of every nation. So the next way he's going to do this is with a drought. Now the Nile River is fundamental to how Egypt works. 97% today of the drinking water toilet water, working water, irrigation water comes from the Nile River. And the Nile River that ends up in Egypt with all that fertile soil, it originates in Ethiopia 
one other country too, but most of it's coming from Ethiopia, which is why there's kind of an even tension today between the Ethiopian government who wants to use the water kind of for their territory and the Egyptians who are depending on that water. So there's even some civil war discussions today about, about how important that water is. God says, I'm going to take away your water supply and see if you can survive without me. The waters are going to fail from the sea. The river is going to be wasted and dried up. The rivers will turn foul. The brooks of defense will be emptied and dried up. The reeds and rushes will wither. The papyrus reeds by the river, by the mouth of the river, and everything sown by the river, it's going to wither and driven away. It's going to be no more. The fishermen are going to mourn. For all you fishermen out there, it's a bad day. Think about how much of the Nile River is based on food and work and commerce. The fishermen are going to cry out. All those who lament, who cast hooks into the river, they're going to languish their nets on the waters. Moreover, those who work in fine flax and those who weave fine fabric will be ashamed. But even in the midst of this pain, these wars and rumors of wars and difficulty he's predicting, he says God has a plan. Its foundations will be broken. All who make wages will be troubled the soul. All their counselors, like the princes of Zoan, that was a city in Egypt, are fools. Pharaoh's wise counselors give foolish counsel. Oh, don't worry about the Assyrians, we're fine. How do you say to Pharaoh, I am the son of the wise, the son of ancient kings? Where are they? Where are your wise men? Let them tell you now when this happens and let them know that the Lord of hosts has purposed against Egypt. Now notice, this is going to be a harsh time, right? We just saw three different aspects of that harshness. But also notice the word purpose. God has a, pain, a plan for pain. God has a purpose in allowing difficulty to come to a person or to a nation. And this case is through water supply. And just to show you how mission-critical water supply is to Egypt, there was a report even two years ago talking about how the, the dying Nile River, there's some problems with the water system there. And just a small change of that is huge, causing huge impact in Egypt even today. Imagine a major drought or a major significant way. If just a little drought gets your attention, imagine a severe drought. Another thing that happened that kind of gave us a picture of this in the future happened in the 1960s and 1970s. It's called the Aswan Dam. So they decided to build a dam uh, on the Nile River because the way the Nile works is that the Nile will flood, that Ethiopian uh, giant lake will overflow, and it will be dry territory down in Egypt, and it will be suddenly this flood comes through because of what happened in Ethiopia. And that flood will bring all kinds of silt and, and really fertile soil. Now, it'll flood everything, but when the flood goes down, they got some of the best growing uh, soil in the world. And also, when the water comes down, with the flax seeds that start to grow, snails will come out to start to eat those things, and, the, and the, the flood even wipes away the snails so they can keep the flax. So even the flood had a purpose. So back in the 60s, they built this dam, and they thought they could control the flood. Well, as with most things humans do, best intentions led to worst results. First time they built it, water went right over top of the dam. So they brought in some Russian engineers to help out with the Egyptian engineers. They redesigned it. But now they redesigned it in such a way that right up where uh, the water supply is coming up this direction from the Nile, because the flow wasn't quite as strong, salt water started coming in from this direction and started spoiling the fertile territory. So they had to rework the thing and rework the thing. Because of the silt changes of how they controlled the dam or didn't control the dam well, there was a whole deposit right here um, in Israel, kind of halfway up uh, north of Jerusalem, that suddenly got exposed. It had never been exposed before this dam got put in place in Egypt. Helicopters flying over top, and they go, what is that? 
archaeologists start digging down, and they dig down, they find this monumental site known as Caesarea Maritime, one of Herod's castles or, or fortresses. It was a major seaport in Israel. And they dug down there, and they found evidence for Pontius Pilate. For years, people made fun of the Bible, no Pontius Pilate. We found archaeological find for Pontius Pilate there, all because of this dam trying to be used to control the river. Now, the point here is that when you think about difficulty in your own life or even the wars and rumors of wars going on in our world today, it's kind of hard to feel like anything's secure. Like, I thought we had peace. What's going to happen? Is there World War III? And God is saying that even when he allows things to happen on the world stage, he has a plan and purpose. And he is always balancing his love and his justice. And I think that's a, a challenge we all have. Like, how can a loving God be just? One of my favorite philosophers who talks on this is a man named Miroslav Volf. Here's how he says. It's a little heady, but I'll give you another one that's a little less heady. He's talking about how most people don't, in America in particular, the West, don't like a God who's just, who institutes justice. He said that's a unique problem to the West, not for most of the world. My thesis is this. The practice of nonviolence, meaning personally not taking revenge, requires a belief in divine vengeance, that God is just, he takes revenge. My thesis will be unpopular with man in the West, but many, but, but imagine speaking to people, as I have, whose cities and villages have been plundered, then burned, leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. Your point to them? Well, you just probably shouldn't retaliate. It's not a good idea. It's not going to cut it, he says. Why not? I say the only means of prohibiting violence by us is to insist that the only proper violence comes from God. Violence thrives today secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take up the sword. It takes the quiet of a suburb for the birth of this thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die. So what's he saying? It's pretty wordy. He's saying that for personal ethics, when somebody does something, you're going to want to take revenge. You're going to want to take things into your own hands. But if you believe that God is the righteous judge, he'll take care of it. You can suspend personal revenge by entrusting a God who is just. Now, he's not debating just war theory. He's talking about personal justice. Certainly Christians over time have thought there was called just war theory. When is it proper that as God sometimes brings in devastating circumstances, God sometimes endorses war, what are ways Christians can think about war and say, is this war meet the different qualifications? If you've never Googled just war theory, just to get ready to think about these issues and all the complexities of it. Now, if that's a little heady for you, here's Becky Pippert's version, a little easier to understand. We tend to be taken aback by the thought that God could be angry. How can a deity who is perfect and loving ever be angry? We take pride in our tolerance of the excesses of others. So what's God's problem? But love detests what destroys the beloved. Real love stands against deception, the lie, and the sin that destroys. Human love here offers a true analogy. The more a father loves his son, the more he hates in his son the drunkard the liar, and the traitor. Anger is not the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. And God is not indifferent. God loves Israel, and God loves the Egyptians, Israel's enemy. 
And God is going to allow circumstances to come into Egypt's life to drive them to find him as Savior. That's the bad news, but the good news is coming. God's trying to expunge evil. However, as he does that, God is going to allow Egypt to mingle their mind of all these things they think are going to save them. Let's see how that works out for you. You think those, those idols can help you? Let's see how that works out for you. He's going to, he says, mingle their mind. So they say, that didn't work. I need to find something else to be my savior. Here's how he says it. Verse 12. Let them tell you now and let them know that the Lord of hosts has purposed against Egypt. The princes of Zoan, that's a city in Egypt, has become fools. The princes of Noph, another city in Egypt, are deceived. They have also deluded Egypt, those who are of the mainstay of its tribes. For the Lord has mingled, and this is a Hebrew word meaning like to mix spices and wine. God has mingled a perverse spirit in our midst. God's like, all right, you're going to worship spirits? I'll mingle that into your thinking. You listen to the spirits. Romans says something like this. God gives you over to your debased mind. And they, these bad advisors, have caused Egypt to err in all her work as a drunken man staggers in his own vomit. <laughs> That's a pretty picturesque. In fact, this is one of Isaiah's favorite pictures. I'm doing a one-man drama in two weeks. And oh my goodness, he loves using the you can't see straight, you can't hear straight, you're so drunk on your own idolatry and your own error. So this is a constant idea that he's saying. God is going to let you, give you over to your mingled mind to see how that works for you. Now, neither will there be any work for Egypt when the, when the Nile happens and all this. The head or tail, representing the leaders of Egypt. The palm branch and bulrush, representing the, the peasants. No work for any of them. Then he's going to use this phrase, in that day. Now, this phrase is really critical. It shows up five times in the passage. He's now going to move from talking about the immediate short-term Assyria to the long, long, long-term, still our future. He uses that phrase, in that day. In that day, when all this comes to bay... Egypt will be like women and will be afraid and fear because of the waving of the hand of the Lord of hosts. Don't blame me, I didn't write it. Isaiah did. But here's, here's what I think he's saying in that culture. In that culture, men were the warriors, women weren't necessarily the warriors and weren't really you know, armed for that. So he's saying it's going to feel like nobody feels armed and nobody feels adequate because of what's coming your way. And your saviors did not work out. They got tottered and you got mingled thinking they would and they don't. And the land of Judah is going to be a powerhouse. I'm going to make the land of Judah a powerhouse, and they're going to be a terror unto Egypt. Never thought Judah could come against us. Everyone who makes mention of it will be afraid in himself because of the counsel of the Lord of hosts has determined against it. So, short-term, short-term uh, application of this is Assyria comes down. This is the whole Syrian empire. They conquer northern Israel, known as Israel. They're now going to come by and conquer southern Israel, known as Judah. They're eventually going to make their way over here and conquer Egypt. And on a modern map, this is like where all the wars are going on today. All the wars and rumors of wars. This whole area he's discussing in their future, our past, is stuff he's ultimately says fulfilled in that day. And it includes Turkey, Syria, Iraq, Jordan, Israel, and Egypt. That there is going to be a time that God is going to establish Judah and it is going to ultimately bring Egyptians and Syrians and Lebanese to find him a savior. Doesn't that seem a long way off? Wait to hear the good news because it just keeps getting more unbelievable. So again, we see partially fulfilled with Assyria, finally fulfilled at the second coming with what's known as the rapture or the judgment of God, but then this millennial kingdom he sets up that draws all these warring factions to himself. Read one more verse. 
Notice how many times he says in that day. In that day, five cities of Egypt are going to speak the language of Canaan. Now, what that means is that they are speaking Hebrew. They have learned to love God. They have become uh, God followers, Yahweh followers, Jesus followers. And that day, five cities in Egypt have learned Hebrew so that they can more accurately worship and understand who he is. They swear by the Lord of hosts, Egypt. One will be called the city of destruction. It's kind of playing words in Hebrew here. Um, where it's like the city of, of, um, of the sun god they worshipped have now destroyed that idea because they're worshipping the god who is the source of the sun. Here's the phrase again. In that day, far future, there's going to be an altar to the Lord. And that giant altar in Egypt is going to be in the midst of the land of Egypt and it's going to be like a pillar on the border of Egypt. Well, which is it? In the midst or on the border? We'll come back to that in a second. And it will be a sign for the witness to the Lord. It's going to be a gigantic witness, stone pillar in Egypt that's a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. And they, the Egyptians, God's enemies, but he loves, are going to cry out to the Lord because of the oppressors, just like Israel did when they were the oppressors. And he, God, will send them a savior, Yeshua, one who saves, and a mighty one, and he will deliver them. How crazy is that? God wants all people to come to know him. All people. Now, what is this pillar in the midst? No one knows. But there is something currently that is both in the midst of Egypt and on the border of Egypt. And it's actually the Great Pyramid. The Great Pyramid sits in the middle of Egypt, but it's also right on the border of Upper Egypt and Lower Egypt. So if you ever want to look into this, it's called the Gospel in Stone. I won't go into all the details, but Josephus tells us that the Great Pyramid was not built by Egyptians, which is why there's no Egyptian hieroglyphics anywhere in the Great Pyramid. There's no sarcophaguses anywhere in the Great Pyramid, but there is an empty tomb in the Great Pyramid with no lid. And if you did have a lid, it couldn't fit down the narrow passageway they made. So it was designed to be a space with a tomb that's open. There's a lot of mystery around that, but Josephus tells us that the pyramid was built by the descendants of Seth, God followers, Yahweh followers, to be a testimony in the past of God. Don't know if it's true or not. But if it is true, maybe finally in the future, God explains what the Great Pyramid is about, and maybe it's set up to be a testimony to him. Or maybe it's something totally different. Whatever it is, there is a way in which God is going to set a pillar in the midst of Egypt to say, even my enemies I loved and cared for, and I wanted them to recognize they were drowning and find me a savior. Which is really what we're about as a church, right? We want other people to know that. And so many times we've studied this and we've looked at this end times prophecy. We did this in the book of Revelation right before we got into the building. And as in heaven, Christians are going to be raptured, the churches. We're going to stand before the bema seat of Christ where we get rewarded for our, how we used our time, treasure, and talents on earth to advocate for people coming to know Jesus. We're then going to return with him at the end of a seven-year tribulation on earth. That includes some seal judgments, some trumpet judgments, whole list of characters, kind of evil characters and things, seven judgments called bold judgments. God's going to come against the city of sin known as Babylon, and then he's going to save. And at that time, he's going to set up a millennial kingdom. And this millennial kingdom is a time he's going to bring all people to come to know him. Egyptians, Assyrians, Israelites, God's plan through this time of incredible turmoil is to set up a kingdom that all people could find him as Savior. Now that's certainly true at our church. The reason we do what we do, we have an exploring service, an equipping service. The reason we study the Bible, 
It's not just to grow our own knowledge. It's so that we can know it is that God's our Savior and we can help other people find him as Savior. I was talking to my friend Tony. He and his family have been coming to our church for many, many years. And one of the things he got excited about when he was in his 17, 18 years old is the Fast Track Bible we wrote, which is a way to read through the entire Bible in, in 90 minutes. He loved it so much that in his 20s, he, he, he personally bought 100 copies from us just to pay for our production cost. He took them out to L.A., and he started using Fast Track Bible to help people who were far from God, didn't believe in God, didn't believe in Jesus, be introduced to the Bible. And one of the people he befriended out there is a guy who won the Big Brother competition. I'm sure there's a lot of Big Brother watchers in here. For those of you who haven't watched the Big Brother uh, TV show, season 23, the winner of that was not a Christian, but became friends with Tony. And he recently did a podcast last week. And let me tell you what he said about how God used somebody from our church to help him find him as Savior. Let's watch. And a good buddy of mine, Tony, had given me what's called like this fast track. And it's Genesis to Revelation in 90 minutes. And I'd never read the Bible. That fast track sat on my desk for like four months. And I get this call and I'm looking over and I'm like, Dang, you know, I should probably read this. So I started, read it, finished in you know, like an hour and a half. I read it four more times where it kind of breaks down just like a quick synopsis of the Bible start to finish. Read it four more times. I was like, all right, I'm ordering a Bible. And so I realized I was going to have to move out of this house and I was going to have to go back home to Nashville with a one-way ticket, reading Genesis on the flight, but to live at home with my parents. And you want to talk about, like, humbling. And ultimately, it was a lot of poor decisions that led me there, poor money management, just winning half a million dollars in front of seven million people to then having to go back home and live with your folks. And he has not only read the Bible, but come to know Jesus. And now Tony continues to mentor him and call with him every week and just help him come to know who God is. And he's using his multiple followers on Twitter now to talk about his faith and what it means to grow in Jesus. Now, $500,000 and bad decisions, like many people who come into money and don't have good decisions, and suddenly so realize all that got tottered, right? Got mingled with, this will, this will bring me happiness, and it didn't. And they came to find God. We did recently at our exploring service, we are in a series called The Seven Wonders of the World. I was speaking on the Taj Mahal, and which is really a whole setup for the Islamic view of eschatology, which is end times. I was contrasting the, the Quran from the Bible, and we did a, a little video for the Eco Project, and several people from the Eco Project came to that service who typically attend this or others, and they said, man, not only we love seeing the video, but we loved the service. You know, we, just, we come to the other service typically, man, this is a great presentation of the gospel. Like, yeah. I said, man, I took that series and I sent that to my brother. I sent that to my friend. Man, and that's really what we're about as a church. We're trying to create tools, fast track, exploring service, equipping service, so that you can use those tools to impact the people in your life. That's what we're about. It's called the Great Commission. So, third thing, and now we're really into the future as he gives this last promise. The Lord is a lifesaver, as we've learned already, but he's a gentleman. He waits for us to know we're drowning. And he's going to wait for Egypt to know it's drowning. So watch what happens here. Then, still talking about future tense, then the Lord will be known to Egypt. So still hasn't happened in our present day. And the Egyptians as a whole will know the Lord in that day. There it is again, in that day. And will make sacrifices and offerings. 
which is why many people think there will be a third temple because in the future, people from Egypt are traveling up to to Israel to make sacrifices and vows in Israel. Yes, they will make a vow to the Lord and perform it. Israel's enemies. And the Lord will strike Egypt, as you saw, dictators and droughts. But even when God strikes you or strikes a nation, he does it so he can heal it. They will return to the Lord. That's the goal, that they will return to the Lord. He will be entreated by them and heal them. God's goal is always restorative. It's not punitive. It's restorative. It's bring back anger. It's not payback anger. God's trying to get us to find him. I'm drowning. I need you. In that day, there's a phrase again, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. And the Assyrians, arch enemies of Israel, arch enemies of Egypt, there's going to be a highway connecting the two, and the Assyrians are going to come into Egypt, hey, buddy, hey, brother. And the Egyptians are going to come into Assyria, hey, brother. And the Egyptians are going to serve alongside with the Assyrians. This sounds crazy in this day. In fact, the Assyrians were so enemies of the Israelites that Jonah, the prophet, so hates the Assyrians, he won't go to the capital city of Nineveh to tell them God may forgive them because he's so scared God might love his enemies. It's the whole book of Jonah. And here God is setting up that in that day, the Lord will be one of three in Egypt. Egypt's going to serve Yahweh. Assyria is going to serve Yahweh, and they're going to be a blessing in the midst of the land, along with Israel. God loves his people, whether they live in Turkey, whether they live in Iran or Iraq. But God is going to use difficult, warish circumstances through time and a tribulation to bring all of them to the place at which they all agree that he is the true God as sent through Jesus. Doesn't that sound a million miles away? But God said he's going to do it. And in that day, blessed is the Egypt. Blessed is Egypt, my people. Egyptians are my people. And the Assyrians, the work of my hands. And Israel, my inheritance. There's a book called Living Fully in in Light of the Fulfillment of Isaiah 19. He says that God is trying to bring his family back together. Jacob and Esau. And in the millennial kingdom, we're going to see when all turn to him and realize they need him, that's the moment he's going to bring his family back together. Again, you see that on a map, and you look at modern day, and you say, what in the world would it take for Iran, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, Israel, and Egypt to get along, to agree, to be brothers? And God says, the only way it's going to happen is I'm going to bring people to a place when they all have a common enemy, death, and in that moment, they're going to all cry out to me as Savior. And it will finally be fulfilled at the end of the tribulation period where God will recognize he's the Savior to anyone who calls out to them. And that's why this image he gives us is not just true for them, it's true for us. What does it look like for us to say when the world feels like it's just crazy falling apart, I'm going to wrap myself up in this comforter. God, I'm comforted that you knew the future in the past and you had a plan. God, I'm comforted that you have a plan in the future and you've got a plan. Even though I can't see it, I can't even imagine how that would ever happen. But God can work all things together for good. God saves drowning disobeyers, whether Egyptian or whether they are Assyrian. But God makes saints out of rescued rebels like you and me. So what does it mean for you and I in our life? It means that we are called 
to rescue other rebels, to be part of a life-saving station. The church was designed to be a life-saving station that rescued rebels could rescue rebels. That we could say, I was drowning in my own disobedience, I was drowning in my own thoughts that I could save myself, and I had to reach out to God. What does it look like for you to join the life-saving station in your personal life? To say, how can I in my current circumstances, as tough as they are, as difficult as they are, how can I glorify God? How can I tell others around me that I'm trusting in the Lord, I'm trusting in God? How can I manifest my faith in my circumstances so it'll draw other people watching me to my Savior? Join the life-saving mission. It's what we're about as a church. We believe people grow one step at a time. One step at a time. And we try and as a church come along you and come along your friends and say, where are you at? How do we help, take you take, help you take the next step? But this is not success. Going from somebody who maybe is seeking God to being Christ-centered, that's not successful. Because an equipped Christ follower knows how to equip somebody who's a couple steps behind them. He knows how to connect with people who maybe aren't convinced about the whole thing. A growing Christ follower knows how to build relationships with people who don't even think they believe in God, Jesus, or the Bible. So we as a church do what we individually are doing. We create exploring environments to help people explore faith. Connecting environments to help people connect to each other. And equipping environments to equip us for what we need for the tools for life. We are a life-saving equipping station. One of my favorite illustrations of this Every time I see this picture, I think of it. It's a story of a little life-saving station. A group of people saving those who are shipwrecked. It goes like this. On a dangerous seacoast, where shipwrecks often occur, a little life-saving station was formed. Oh, it was primitive, but the members were a committed bunch. They risked their life watching the sea day and night to try and save lives. Now, say, they saved so many lives for a while that they became very, very popular. People uh, began to come to this little life-saving station. So they bought more boats. They upgraded the facility. And, and when they did that, they wanted to make the, 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 the seating a little more comfortable, not just emergency cots for those who were rescued. Well, things continued to grow. And that station became so popular for its members, they didn't just come to do the rescuing. They came just to hang out with each other. They regularly loved each other and hugged each other, encouraged one another. And as they did that, they shared events together at that life-saving station. But eventually, fewer people were interested in going on those life-saving missions to save the people out in the ocean. So they hired outside crews to do that kind of work. Now, a large shipwreck just off the coast hit one day, and all of a sudden, those hired crews brought in some of the, the drowning victims that, that were wet and sick and cold and half-drowned. And suddenly, the beautiful place they had built was suddenly in chaos. Well, they had a vote the next weekend, and they voted to stop these life-saving measures that were getting in the way of the life-saving station. There was a small group that protested. This is really what we're supposed to be about, but they were overruled. There are still shipwrecks in those waters to this day, but most people drown. This is what happens when a church doesn't do both of the Great Commission. You equip saints to grow and encourage and affirm each other and equip them to keep reaching those who are drowning. We've got a beautiful facility and it is a great place to invite people. 
But don't forget the main mission of our church is to comfortably connect people to God who are drowning, who don't even know they're drowning, who are drowning in their own idols, they're going to be shaken up, and connect them to God through the Bible and a community of growing Christ followers. Let's pray that end. Father, we just hurt for the world today. The rise of anti-Semitism, Father, we know that everyone is made in your image. And we ask, Father, that you would restrain evil. We ask, Father, that you would bring about justice. We're not smart enough to know what it looks like, but, Father, we know you are the God of justice, and you would bring about justice for the innocent. You would protect the innocent of every nation in the midst of these conflicts and wars and rumors of wars. And yet, Father, we're not overwhelmed with fear or anxiety because we know you're in control. It doesn't look like you're in control, but we know you are in control because you always have been. So, Father, we just cast our anxieties on you, our fears upon you, and we cry out to you personally as our Savior. Be mighty to save. Show yourself strong on the national stage, on the personal stage. And show us, Father, we're not part of a kingdom, but as you judge nations for their laws, Father, teach us as being citizens of this kingdom, what does it look like for us to enact the principles and the laws that would advance your love for people, your caring for life, your love for Amagio Deo. Teach us and send us. In Jesus' name, amen.